I'm very thankful this time of year we are singing and listening to Christmas carols. It's a beautiful time of year. We are turning tonight to Philippians chapter 2, and I'll be reading the first eight verses of chapter 2. This evening's sermon is really a continuation of this morning's sermon. In Luke chapter 1, we saw the humility of Mary, that she was weak, but Jesus is strong. And tonight in Philippians chapter 2, specifically in verses 5 through 8, I want to talk about what that means for us as a church and how it's possible for us to adopt a similar humility in the way that we interact with each other. So from Philippians chapter 2, again reading verses 1 through 8, and I'll be focusing on verses 5 through 8, hear the word of the Lord. Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And tonight, if your eye goes naturally to verse 9 and the verses that follow, and you think, but I want to hear about the resurrection and the power of Jesus in his return, I'll just give you a short announcement for next week, Sunday evening. We'll hear about it then. But tonight, verses 5 through 8, and my friends, brothers, and sisters, the famous theologian St. Augustine was once asked to name the central principles of the Christian life. And he said, my friend, I have three of them. The first is this, humility. The second of them is humility. And the third, as you might guess, is also humility. That answer was very much in keeping with what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. It is not natural to be humble. In fact, a survey a number of years ago, you know how people do this, they put a mic in someone's face, it's become a lot more common now than it was even 10 or 15 years ago. They asked people the simple question, do you consider yourself above average as a human being? Above average intelligence, above average morality, above average in comparison to your peers, would you guess what percentage of people thought they were above average? Nine out of ten. That doesn't bespeak, as a human race, much humility. We tend to think of ourselves more highly, to use the language of this passage, than we ought. And so in the first four verses of this passage, Paul commends to the Philippians a humble attitude. In fact, he really connects the humility with a, with a central characteristic of a healthy church. And that is, he says, have the mind of Christ, which is a humble mind, because when you adopt that attitude of humility, what results is a unity in the church. If I can say, having pastored 
churches now for 20 plus years. In my experience, I've yet to see a healthy church that does not have humility, and that humility is expressed in a great deal of unity. That's not to say there are not times where churches divide over matters of significant importance. They can. But if a church is to be healthy, as Paul says here, there should be a unity based on humility. The two always go together within the body of Christ. Which leads to this question that we're going to consider tonight, and that is, how does that humility become a part of who we are? How is that possible? If nine out of ten of us believe that we are above average, how can our hearts become humble? It's not natural, it doesn't come easily to us, and yet we're commended to have that attitude here in this passage. The answer that Paul gives us is a very simple answer. You're going to be astonished when I tell you, but I don't want you to go by quickly past its force. Paul says that humility that results in unity in the church is only common when we see how that humility is at the core of Christ and his work, and we seek to imitate our Savior. And there are three ways that Paul says that humility is demonstrated in the life of our Savior. It is illustrated before he came, it is illustrated in his coming, and it is illustrated in the entirety of his life. And again, as you hear me describing the humility of Christ, what I really want you to think is, this is the Savior that I'm called to follow and to imitate in my life as a Christian. So the first is Jesus' humility before he came. You can read about that in verses 5 and 6, and I'm going to do that again for you now. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the image of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held onto. If you have studied this passage, as perhaps some of us have, you know this is one of those challenging passages in the Bible. It begins with that central phrase in the words that I read, who being in the form of God did not consider it something to be grasped onto or to be held onto. There have been people in the history of the church who have openly questioned based on this verse who Jesus being in the form of God, whether Jesus himself is equal with the Father. The ancient heretic Arius, for example, said there was a time when Jesus was not divine and he only became divine when he was chosen by God to become our Redeemer. Before that, he was merely another human being. Perhaps he said Jesus was like God, very nearly God, but not fully and truly God like the Father is until the Father chose him to be so. But the idea of form in this passage is not what Arius believed. The idea of form is something that belongs to a particular group. So we can say that God the Father, for example, is in the form of God. That is, he is the characteristics of being God. No one else, as a human being, bears the characteristics of God. But the Father does, and so does the Son, and so does the Spirit. 
It is right then for another translation of the Bible to say about this passage, being in the very nature of God, Jesus did not consider it robbery, or he did not consider that something to be grasped or to be held onto. The fact that Jesus is fully God is important for us to understand as a foundation for his humility. Because if Jesus is fully God, truly God, transcendent God, as the Father and the Spirit are, then this humility becomes all the more stark, becomes all the more impressive. He's not a human being merely like you are, or you are, or I am. This is God himself who humbles himself. The Bible teaches the fullness of the deity of Christ very clearly. Let me give you just one example. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, The Son being the brightness of His image and the express replication of His person, that is, the Son to the Father. Again, I emphasize the deity of Jesus Christ because it emphasizes the great humility of our God. And yet Philippians 4 verse 6 says, But he did not consider that something to be grasped onto or a thing to be held. A different translation has, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. You can see a very different way of translating the ESV does versus other translations. So in addition to this being in the form of God as a difficult phrase to translate, The one that we have in verse 6 is also very difficult to translate and to understand. So let me paraphrase it for you. When it says, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, or is equality with God something to be grasped onto, what the writer is saying is that Jesus did not regard this divine equality as something to be held onto. Now hear this. For his own advantage, for his own benefit, so that he would receive something himself for himself. If I can just say a word to those of us who are going to receive Christmas presents in the coming weeks, or if you happen to have a birthday this coming week, wink, wink. It's not very difficult to realize when your birthday or Christmas comes that you're going to receive gifts, and I guess all of our inclination is to say, I've received something for who? For me. This is mine. I just received it. It had my name in the package, and I opened it, and now I get to use it for my own purpose, my end. It belongs to me. What Jesus possessed, being equal with the Father, certainly belongs to him, But he does not use that for his own end. He did not consider his equality with God something that he would simply hold on to for his own sake and his own benefit. He is not selfishly God, if I can put it that way. That is the point that Paul is making here. Instead, Jesus was willing to give up the glory of heaven itself for a time in order to come into our world as a helpless small child in the womb of a young woman in order to be our Savior. If I can just contrast that with all of our experiences, I don't think there is literally anyone else 
who is as selfless as our Savior Jesus Christ. And the reason I know that's our experience because, is because if we go back to the Garden of Eden, what is the way in which the evil one tempted humanity? The devil said to Adam and to Eve, if you eat of this tree, you will become like you will become like God, knowing good and evil. You will become like God himself is. You will know as much as God. You'll be captain of your own ship. You will control your own destiny. You want to be like God, don't you? And yet the irony of redemptive history is that the one who actually is God did not hold on to the power, the prestige, the glory that that position, that deity entitled him, but he willingly gave it up for a time in order to come in human form to be our Savior. And so Paul says in verses 5 and 6, this is what it means for Jesus in his willingness to come that he was selfless he was humble he was willing to give up a glory that we only hope to see someday to give it up for a time that he would come into this world and paul says this is what you are called to also possess. Have this mind among you as well, that all that you believe is yours, you hold on to it, you want it for yourself. May you have the selflessness of our Savior before he came, willing to give it up for the sake of another. That is the humility of our Savior Jesus Christ. There's a second way that Paul describes his humility as well, and that comes in verse 7. Jesus was humble before he came into this world, but he was also humble when he came. Verse 7 says, but he made himself, I'm reading my own translation here, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of a man. Now this morning, I spent a lot of time talking about Jesus coming into this world as a very small child. We read about Mary going to see her relative Elizabeth, and Jesus being a very small child in the womb of his mother at that time. You can imagine how humbling that is, how humbling that would be for one who is God himself to come in the most helpless form, that is, in a baby who could do nothing for himself. And Paul says in verse 7 that Jesus was willing to become someone who had no reputation taking the form of a slave. That might seem ridiculous to you. How did Jesus come as a slave? He didn't literally come as a slave, did he? Well, Jesus certainly did come not as a powerful man, not as a ruler, not as someone who is universally recognized, he came into what appears to us from every account to be very humble circumstances to very poor people. And more than that, Jesus came not only in humility, he came to serve. He actually came to be a slave, to be a servant to us, 
so that through his life and his death, through the power of resurrection, we can be saved. Is it not true that Mark 10 verse 45 says, Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer my life as a ransom for many. Notice the reversal. In glory, Jesus was served. The angels bow before him, the saints in eternity, even in the moment we're speaking here tonight. The saints in eternity are gathered around the throne of our Savior, singing, praising, giving glory to the Lamb. This is the glory that Jesus was receiving, but he counted it of no reputation and became a servant to us, coming in the likeness of a human being. Jesus did not claim while he was on earth to be a man of political power, of civil power, of military power. In fact, when his disciples near the time of his trial offered to fight against those who would capture him, he told Peter, put away your sword. Later on, he told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus had no aspiration to receive the lauding to receive the praise that is due to those who have strength that is accounted in our world. No, Jesus came in a form, in a humble form, in a humble human form, in order to demonstrate to us exactly the opposite. He knew oppression and struggle while I was here. He knew hunger. He knew sleeplessness. He knew persecution. He knew injustice. Jesus knew all of these things. And he knew them in order to come and to be in our place to demonstrate the humility that is necessary not only for us to imitate, but it's necessary for our salvation. Jesus was humble in his coming. And then the third way that the apostle describes the humility of Jesus He was humble before he came, he was humble in his coming, and he was also humble while he was here. In verse 8, we read these words. It says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is the greatest example of Jesus' humility? It is not found in the cradle, it's found in the cross. On the cross, Jesus was put to death as a common criminal, one who's rebellious against the Roman Empire, someone who suffered the most outrageous form of capital punishment the Romans knew. And this willingness to lay down his life stood in stark contrast, I'm certain, with almost every, if not every criminal who died on a cross. They went kicking and screaming. They didn't want to be persecuted. They did not want to be ravaged by the pain of the cross. But Jesus, it says, went to the cross willingly, In fact, he came to die so that through his death we might find life. That willingness to lay down his life, again, stands in marked contrast to most. Adam, for example, as he lived in the Garden of Eden, came to the day when he was faced with that choice to serve himself, to have momentary happiness or to serve God, and we all know what he chose to do. And I would ask you tonight to examine your own heart whether that is not what your heart inclines you to do as well. But Jesus came to reverse that. 
by his death. Romans 5 verses 19 through 21 say, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. The law entered that the offense might bound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded so much more, so that as sin reigned through death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The connection between Jesus' birth and death is a very clear one in the Bible and must be clear in our minds tonight. It was to die on the cross that Jesus came into this world. It was not an accident. It wasn't a matter of that's just how it worked out. The humility that existed before Jesus came, the humility that existed when Jesus came into this world, is a humility that marks the life of our Savior, Jesus, which brings us to this question, so what? So God humbled himself for our salvation. What does that mean for the way that we live? Why are you tonight given this three-part summary of Jesus' life? There are two reasons why the apostle lays this out for us tonight. The first is most obvious. It begins in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Jesus Christ. It is to say that the mind of Jesus Christ our Savior is a mind that you are called to have. There is no room in the human life for me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity of the human hearts, to live on the throne of our existence. If you say to yourself, I will take for myself because otherwise no one will give it to me, I am worth all this plus more. That is not the mind of Jesus. If you look around you and you see others and you fault find, you're overly critical. You don't seek to help, you seek to tear down. You don't seek to build up, you seek to make them lower. That is not the mind of Jesus Christ. If you find yourself struggling with anger when others do things that bother you, when they take what you believe to be yours, when they don't respect you the way that you believe, you ought to be viewed that is not the mind of Christ. And that failure to have the mind of Christ will be demonstrated again according to the Apostle Paul in the first four verses in many ways, but especially in the way that we view each other in the church. It infects human relationships of all sorts, friendships, marriages, but especially life in the body of Christ, there can be no unity apart from humility. Do you hear that? And therefore, the mind of Christ must be present in each one of us in order for the unity that demonstrates the love of Christ to be found here. That's the first thing. That is the so what of this passage. But there's a second as well, and I think it's even more important. The humility of our Savior before He came, when He arrived, and throughout His life is a humility that is meant to not only call you to imitation, it is a call to faith and trust. 
Because the humility of our Savior not only calls you, it makes it possible for you to have that humility. It is possible for you to give up yourself and all that you believe that you deserve. It's possible for you to actually abandon yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him. Not because tonight I'm calling you to it, I'm going to browbeat you into it. I'm saying Philippians 2 says it. It is possible because the Spirit of Christ is in you. And because of this Spirit of Christ, this mind of the Spirit of Christ, I can say with confidence It is not only that you're called to have this mind of Christ. Our Savior has given this to you. And by His desire to come into this world, by His coming and by His life in this world, He has destroyed sin's grasp over your heart. So that in various ways, in many ways, perhaps not perfectly, but in many ways, you see the destruction of your own sinful inclination. And you see your ability to follow after our Savior in humility. Let me simply say to you that even though, as I said this morning, we are weak, He is strong. The strength of our Savior is seen in His humility. A humility that He calls us to, but a humility that He also enables in the hearts of His people. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we confess that sometimes the humility that you call us to is not something that we even desire. It is possible that some of us struggle with even the desire, the recognition that this humility is a part of who we should be. And maybe tonight you've brought us to an awareness that one of the great Christian virtues is humility. A humility that seeks to follow after our Savior Jesus. And if that's what you have done in the preaching of this word, we're deeply grateful. That maybe for others of us, we have come here longing for that humility, and yet in many ways still struggling for it to be true. We're proud of our achievements. We're proud of our successes. We're proud even of the ways in which we can manipulate other people. Father, tear that down. Give us not only a recognition of our failure, but give us the hope of Jesus Christ, who came in the form of a slave, willing to serve us, that our bondage to sin would be released. And we would have the hope tonight of not only knowing that we are sinners, but Father, work in us deeply that assurance that because of Jesus' coming, you not only are able to save, you actually do. And you transform and work in our hearts the very humility that is described in this great passage of Scripture. We pray for each one who is here and each one who is joining us over the internet stream that your word be effective and powerful as you have promised. For we come in Jesus' great and powerful name. Amen.